you want to grab out your Bibles or get your phone ready, this morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 18 and 19. And so we are returning to our study in the book of Colossians this morning. And so I took a, a week off last week as we had an opportunity to reflect upon God and his character and then spend some time praying that those things would be real, be true in us. But this morning we're coming back to this uh, section here. Now, when we pick up in 3.18, Paul's really going to run here all the way through chapter 4 and verse 1. And what's referred to as this household code. And so he's addressing a number of things uh, and, and just kind of groupings of people that would have been found in the first century. So he starts with husbands and wives. He moves to parents and children. And then he finishes with slaves and masters. And so first century, they would have all lived in one area under one roof potentially and the head of all these things would be the husband. And so the direction that he gives, uh, the wisdom that he brings, and he kind of sets the course for everybody in the household. Now, interesting that when Paul opens up to this section, then in each different unit that he moves through and, and discusses and each one he addresses, he always starts with the one that, according to the first century culture, would have been viewed as insignificant. Or would have been viewed as the weaker party. And so when he talks about husbands and wives, uh, culturally speaking, in the first century, he starts with wives. And that would have been surprising. When he talks about children and parents, he talks about children first. When he talks about slaves and masters, he talks about slaves first. And so he moves from the system of talking about the, the lesser party to the, the greater party in terms of first century culture. Now in terms of marriage, those of us in this room, those of us watching online... Who, would, who have been married, many of us have encountered that marriage is difficult, right? It, it's glorious, and it's beautiful, and it displays the gospel in an amazing way, or at least it gives us an opportunity to display the gospel. For many of us, uh, praise God, it gives us an opportunity to be forgiven time and time again by our loving and amazing spouses. Amen? Amen. That should have been mostly fellas. So let's, let's just kind of look around the room and maybe draw some encouragement. If you've been married for five years, if you've been married for at least five years, would you, would you stand up? At least five years, would you stand up? There you go. If you've been married, more than 10 years remain standing. More than 10 years remain standing. I saw a, a wife sit down beside a husband. <laughs> Y'all, we're going to talk. If you've been married more than 15 years, continue standing. Okay? Begin to separate, right? If you've been married more than 20 years, continue standing. 25. 30. 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, oh man, this is getting tense, <laughs> 60, 65. Congratulations, man. That is impressive. Uh, Charlie Brown 
uh, when we were doing a service and I had a conversation with Cherry, she said, people would often ask Charlie, y'all were married, I don't see where, where Cherry is, 63 years, 64 years, yeah. And uh, she said, people would often ask Charlie, how did you stay married so long? He would say, it takes a couple of things. One, you got to stay married. And two, you got to keep living. <laughs> All right, it's been good. <laughs> now, Paul doesn't have either one of those. But he does bring some things to marriage that I think are incredibly helpful. Now, what Paul does here in two verses in Colossians 3, 18 and 19, he does in a much longer format in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, verses 22 through 33. So he does it in 12 verses there. He does it in two verses here. And so if you want a more extended discussion of this, we preach through Ephesians. You can get great books on this. Uh, Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, wrote a book just on that section of text there in Ephesians. We're going to try and stick just to what we have here in Colossians and fill in a little bit. Let's read 18 and 19 together. Paul writes and simply puts, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Really simple, infinitely complex as it's played out over the interpersonal relationship of a husband and his wife. Now what's interesting and fascinating about this is that if you look at Galatians chapter 3 and verses 20, verse 28, we see a really informative text. Paul writes and says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So essentially, that passage there in Galatians, he says, listen, when salvation comes in, it creates this great equality all across those who know and submit and follow Jesus. So in the terms of, of a marital relationship, you have husband, you have wife, you have children, you have all these various groups, and what he says to them is you are all on the same footing, that there is no superior person within the confines of marriage. Right? As it relates to salvation, as it relates to Jesus. And we find this is incredibly important because what he addresses here isn't, isn't in terms of inferiority. It's not in terms of superiority. It is in terms of how these things work out in terms of the person's function, their role within the confines of marriage. And to the wives, his instructions are submit to your husbands. Now, one thing that we would observe quickly in this is that we would rightly recognize that there is a distinction between submission and obedience, right? There is a distinction between submission and obedience. Submission really gets to the issue of the heart, right? Now, how we recognize that Paul wants us to draw this distinction, how we recognize that Paul wants us to see a difference in submission and obedience, is he uses the word submission in here to describe the husband and the wife, and he uses the word obedience in terms when he's describing the relationship of children to the parents and slaves to masters. So we recognize, even on this first level, that there's an immediate difference. You can be obedient and not at all be submissive. And one of the things we see in the midst of this is, is that this attitude that Paul describes and that he encourages the wife to foster on her, her own and see in here this idea that it is the wife's role to submit. It is not the husband's role to force her into this. Do you see that? 
That's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. We have to make this observation, and this observation beyond this has to permeate our relationships. And so the wife has to cultivate this, this response to her husband of submission. I think Paul gives us a beautiful picture of this, this, this deference for a wife to her husband in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So the wife, in the midst of this relationship, looks at her husband, and she desperately wants him to be a, an, ex- an excellent leader. She desperately wants him to be a man of God. She desperately wants to yield her heart to his leadership. Now, what does Paul say? He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting. Where? Everybody say, in the Lord. Now, this is where it begins to separate this first century response. Paul, if, if he had just stopped there and said, wives, submit to your husbands, every, every married Christian woman would have looked at her husband in the first century and said, this is no different than anybody else in our prevailing culture. This, this, is, this is no different from my lost neighbor. This is no different from my lost parents. This is no different from anybody. Because what a woman's role was in the first century was to do what her husband said. She had no legal standing in society, and so whatever her husband said as the leader of the household was her duty to follow. And so if a Christian wife found herself in the middle of submission, then she couldn't go to her lost neighbor and say, see how I'm doing the things that that, that a Christian does. They'd say, oh no, listen, wives don't have any other role, they don't have any other responsibility. Where he sets them apart is the second half of this verse. As is fitting in the Lord. And now he opens up their heart to a vibrant and beautiful response to freely submit themselves to their spouses. See, they're not responding to some cultural mandate that says, if you want to be a a good Roman citizen, if you want to be a good person living in the first century, this is how women respond to men. He doesn't go to them and say, "Uh, listen, we don't want to stick out in culture, and so you just need to do this. What he, goes, what he goes to them and says, it says, in your response to the Lord, in how you are loving and following Jesus, you are training your heart to respond to your husband. And so when you're together with, with your friends there in the first century marketplace, and they're saying, ah, oh, my husband's such an idiot. Have you met Marcus? What a fool. And all these various things. And I can't believe all these various things. Oh, hey, Marcus, how's it going, buddy? Christian turns to her friend and she says, I love my husband. I follow the Jesus that redeems him. And he's the same Jesus that redeems me. And he calls me to lovingly submit to my husband. Not that my husband is forcing me into this attitude. But in yielding myself to the Lord, I choose to yield myself to my husband. Do you see how the conversation is different? And do you see how the impetus for that is different? And we're in a decidedly different day, right? We're in a day and time when issues and understandings of submission, they just kind of instantly kind of pull out the frustration in some. That have changed this understanding of of gender roles within the Bible and say that submission is not a beautiful thing. It's an oppressive regime. 
Now I would tell you, and I think that if you've studied history, you'd recognize that certainly the church has been guilty of oppressing women. Certainly the church has looked at men and said, you rule your house with an iron rod, and if anybody steps out of line, then you take care of your household. And we would look at that and say, that's not at all adhering to a biblical model of submission. That's not at all adhering to a biblical model of the home. And so just, so just because they have failed in the past doesn't mean we can't uphold this and subscribe to its beauty in the here and the now. And so now when we find ourselves, if you are a woman and, and you find yourself in a conversation with another married woman and you're describing submission, and, she would, and, and your friend or in a person would say to you, what in the world is wrong with you? Don't you care anything about yourself? Don't you care anything about your value? Don't you care anything about feminism? Don't you care anything about women's rights? And you might be able to respond to her and say, oh, I care about those things deeply. But can I tell you about something I care about far greater? And it's something that because I care about it far greater, it impacts my outlook on all things. I submit myself first to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you begin to lay out the gospel. And you say this is how Jesus submitted himself to God the Father. This is in fact how the entirety of the Trinity. We see this wonderful beautiful dance. Where all the members of the Godhead. Are freely deferring one to another. Saying no you lead. No you lead. No you lead. The Trinity gives us a beautiful wonderful gracious model of loving submission. Where the son says to the father, not my will, but yours. And the spirit says to the son, send me out, let me be impactful. Freely responding in gracious submission to God the father. Now one of the amazing things we see in the biblical model of submission is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, before Paul gets into this lengthy section of 22 through 33, before he kind of rolls into the area of wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, what he had done prior to this, back in verse 18, is give them instruction that they are to be filled with the Spirit. And it's within this understanding in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 that they are to be filled with the Spirit, that he gets into verse 21 and he says this is what that looks like for a husband and their wife, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You want to know what a relationship looks like where a wife freely gives herself to submit to her husband? It is a relationship where the husband is already submitting himself out of deference to the Lord to his wife. And how does he do that? He does that by loving her well. This is the whole point Paul's making there in Ephesians chapter 5. That in marriage we show the gospel. And we show the gospel because Jesus, Jesus submitted himself to the Lord so that he might be raised up. So when Paul is writing to the woman, he has in mind this understanding that her husband is not perfect, that the wife is not perfect, but they both willingly submit, yield themselves to the direction of their Lord and Father. Amen? So he turns to the husband. And while it wouldn't have been uh, culturally upsetting, while it wouldn't have been culturally difficult for him to say to the wife, submit to your husband, it would have been countercultural. It would have been decidedly diff different for him to, to go to the husband and to say anything other than rule your household well. But he doesn't say that. 
He doesn't lead the husband to embrace his full masculinity. He doesn't lead the husband to embrace all the freedoms that he has within his culture. He doesn't lead the husband to to exert himself over his wife. He doesn't say, in essence, listen, wives, submit your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, help her to submit well. It's not his role. It better not be his role. So what does he say to the husband? He comes to the husbands, these men who would have been at the height of the culture in the first century. And, 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 and some of us still see ourselves in our hearts this way today. And he comes to these leaders. And he says something to them that they would not expect. He says, husbands, love your wives. And it would have been arresting. It would have been shocking. It would have been in some sense scandalous because he gets at something that nobody else was telling them to do. He writes to them this simple, incredibly devastating piece of advice and incredibly liberating. How does the wife find themselves willingly giving herself in the midst of submission? Because she finds herself living within a relationship where the husband loves her, loves her desperately. That he wakes up in the morning longing to find ways to express his love for her. That he goes to bed at night wondering in his mind, have I shown her today that I have loved her well? Am I freely responding to her? And am I drawing from the Lord the ability to love her and then am I lavishing it upon her? Notice what it doesn't say in here. Husbands, love your wife well when she's treating you the way that you deserve. Husbands, love your wife well when she's treating you the way that you want. Husbands, love your wife well when? No. All these things are done away with. Paul gives no credence. He gives no foothold. He gives no place. He writes to the husband. He says, husbands, love your wives. He calls to continuous, uninterrupted, sacrificial service. In Ephesians chapter 5, let's just read this quickly because it's wonderful the way that Paul describes this. Ephesians 5 and 25 through 30. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And then he describes how. He says, as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. So Jesus willingly died for the church. Jesus took on sin. He took on impunity. He took on Uh, being ostracized he took on all these things for the church and and, and the instruction from Paul to the husband is love your wife in this way be willing to suffer for your wife that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might become holy without blemish he says these are all the things that Jesus did for the church So in the same way, verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So the husband looks at his wife, listens to his wife, hears what his wife is saying, and hears what his wife isn't saying. And he responds in love. Now for some of us, we have subscribed to the model that, listen, I told you I loved you years ago. If I changed my mind, I'd let you know. And some of us 
say, man, I love my wife, and I show her I love her by working hard every day. I show her I love her by doing this or doing that or engaged in this behavior or that behavior. And you're communicating to your wife that you love her through the doing of things, presuming, and in some cases you are correct. Your wife recognizes that you love her and you love her well because you work hard and you provide for your family. But some of us, I was reminded this week, some of us, man, we would work hard whether we were single or we were married. So working hard isn't so much an indication that our wives, that we love them, it's just what we do. And she just happens to be a recipient of the money we bring home. And you're giving yourself all of this credit in making all of this money and doing all of these things and saying, ha, look at how much I love her. I make over $100,000 a year. Look at how much I love her. I bought this car. Look at how much I love her. I bought this house. And she says, you want to show me how much you love me? Quit working so much and spend time with me. But you don't know that because you don't ask. You presume the things she cares about. You presume the things that are important to our heart, but you're operating in your strength. Relationships that function best communicate well with one another. can't tell you how many times I sit in to do counseling with a couple and, and the wife explains uh, the root of their issues one way and she says, isn't that right? Isn't that right? And you can tell it's hitting him that he thinks, oh no, I did not think that was the way that it was. But I get that the question is only anticipating a positive response. So he says, absolutely. Absolutely. She's no fool. She knows she's about to trap him in his words. <laughs> Men, if I could give you a word of advice, speak to your wife, hear her heart, and give her your time and attention. Invite her to tell you how she delights in being loved. And love her that way. It says, husbands, love your wives. And the second command that he gives them is, do not be harsh with them. Now, what Paul presupposes in this is that some wives would not submit. So he uses a form of the verb that clearly indicates to us that this is the response for the wife's failure to submit. And so some, some men, the way they respond to their wives when their wives aren't doing what they want them to, is to... You just look like somebody kicked your puppy. Like you hold a quiet, silent grudge. Some of you, I can't tell the difference between when you're hungry and angry and, and, and when you're having a, you know, a spat with your wife. You just always have this kind of look. My wife refers to it as thin-lipped mat, right? When my lips just kind of get just kind of razor thin. Apparently I inherited it from my father. And so in the midst of these things, Paul says, listen, this doesn't get to take root in your heart. This doesn't get to be displayed in your household. We would say that more than just the, the, there gets to be no physical abuse in a house, there gets to be no verbal abuse in the house, there, getting, there does not get to be uh, emotional ma manipulation. If the husband is loving his wife well, there is no place for a husband to be hard or harsh with his wife. There's no place for this in the Christian home. Now, what would have been decidedly difficult for those hearing this within the days of Paul is they had free reign to talk to their wife however they wanted to, and their wife had no legal recourse for response if the husband treated them harshly. But Christians, 
you are primarily a person who has submitted yourself to your Father in heaven, and you recognize that in your treatment of everyone, you're giving evidence to how you submit to the Lord. So our relationship with God is training our hearts for how we respond to our wives in the midst of difficulty. Marriage is so incredibly difficult. And I believe the enemy is working overtime to seek to tear apart Christian marriages. Now some of us have heard the the statistic that over half of all marriages end in divorce. And there's no statistical difference between Christian marriage and secular marriage. But repeatedly, you've seen studies that have come out over the last few years that have indicated this is, this is not true. That presumably the people they were interviewing and taking into their sample, they would just walk up to them and say, have you ever driven by a church? And do you feel fondly about a church? And this is the level of commitment and this is the level of Christian that they were kind of getting at. But when you take into account people who attend church regularly, who read their Bible fervently and would say that they actually have a real and vibrant relationship with Jesus... It drops to around a third. And so it's not 50 or 60 percent, it's about a third. Now, we would look at this and still see those still aren't great odds. Are you trying to be encouraging or not? But the point is having a strong relationship with Jesus is the greatest weapon to defending your marriage. Having an individual strong relationship with Jesus, if you are a wife and your husband is an unloving, awful person, it's what can keep you in that marriage and what can keep you feeling secure. Now, I'm not saying if he's in the middle of physical abuse and you're suffering abuse. If you're suffering abuse, get out, come to one of us and let us help you. But if you're just in the humdrum of marriage and you're married to a guy who's just not great, He'd be an okay friend, but now you found yourself married to him? And you're thinking, cheers again? I hate that show. What's going on with you? Your urgency in your relationship to Jesus can help keep you in this marriage and keep your heart tethered to your husband. Husbands, if you have a wife that the only thing she ever follows with the word to submit is submit to my authority and she's talking to you and you're wondering how in the world do I stay married to this 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 delightful loving amazing woman your faith relationship to Jesus being fervently in the word day in and day out being caught up and captivated by this heart pursuit of God for you can keep you there some of us we would look at it and just say man we need help Our marriages are struggling. The best thing you could do in the midst of needing help in your marriage is to seek help. I recommend to people all the time in conversations when they talk about their marriages, I say, you need counseling. Go talk to someone. Go talk to me. Go talk to Carolyn. Go find another counselor if you don't want to visit with somebody at the church. But seek help. Repeatedly, I can tell you that when I sit down to do marriage counseling for a couple... When I'm going through and I'm kind of diagnosing where they're at and I begin to ask them questions about their own personal spiritual development. And just ask a question like, what does, what does Bible intake look like for you? What is, what is your habit of Bible reading? What is your frequency of attendance in church? And they say, well, you know, of course if I'm there on a Sunday and you're reading the Bible, I'm following along. Man, I need to spend more time in the Word. I really need to, more, need to pray more. 
And what they really begin to detail is it, at some point in the past they had an encounter with Jesus, they begin to just kind of coast and hope that the rest of their life would be okay. If, if you aren't passionately pursuing Jesus, if you're not having a sense of fervency in your relationship with Jesus, it will negatively impact and affect your marriage. Do you know how, that, you know how I can know this and how we know this is true? You're married to a sinner. And you yourself are a sinner. And it is time spent with Jesus where he's pulling the sin out of your life. Allow Jesus to pull the sin out of your life. Allow him to use his Holy Spirit to drive you in conviction so that your spouse might be married to a tolerable, wonderful person. You need to spend time growing in faith. Some of us, we need help. What you need is a mentor couple. One of the reasons we had people stand at the beginning of this is because I wanted you to look around and to see that there are a number of people in this fellowship that have been married 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and we have a winter year. Go see one of them. Your peers, people who have been married about the same length of time as you have, can commiserate with you. But the likelihood of them giving you good, sound, godly wisdom is, is not great. Go see someone who is in the next phase of life or two phases of life. If you have young kids, see somebody who has teenagers. If you have teenagers, see somebody who has grandkids. Come to them and say, how did you navigate these things? How did you make these things? How did you make it through these things? We need to help and we need to help each other. Amen? Man, if you are single and you're sitting in here and you, and you say, what, what point is this for me? What do, what do I do? I want to be married. Now listen, Paul would say if you're single, it's better to remain single. So if you're single and can stay there, there are more opportunities for you to advance the gospel because you're not adherent to, to a husband or to a wife. But if you're weak and like many of us in here and you're going to find yourself in the midst of marriage, let me give you just a couple of points of advice. Look for Jesus in them. You don't know if they're cute or not right now because they're wearing a mask, so look for Jesus in them. <laughs> Some of you on your wedding day, they may not say raise the veils, they'll say pull down the mask and you'll say, whoops! <laughs> Man. You do have a great personality and I'm looking forward to getting to know that. I mean, look for Jesus in them. In your time around them, do you see the characteristics of Christ in them? Or would you just walk away and say, he or she's a great person, we have a lot of fun together. Their looks are going to fade, their fun may change over time. Do you see Jesus in them? Do you see them passionately pursuing Jesus? Do you see them pursuing Jesus over work? Do you see them pursuing Jesus over money? Do you see them pursuing Jesus over fun? Do you see Jesus in them? If you don't find somebody else, consign them to the list of friends. Find somebody else. If you're a woman and you're looking around and you're thinking, who can I marry? Where can I find a man? Find a man in the midst of finding Jesus in them that you look at them and say, this is a person that on the basis of his relationship with Jesus, I could see myself submitting to. If it's a person you frequently argue with and a person that just drives you nuts, probably not the person you should marry. That's your three of marriage. Let them drive you nuts later. 
If you're a man and you're in the midst of this relationship, find a woman that you can love passionately. Find a woman that regardless of what happens to her in the future, that you would want to wake up each morning longing to serve her in love. The Kellers in their book describe it as desiring to play the Jesus role in the marriage. Do you want to serve your future spouse? Look for the person that you would long to serve, not the person that you would long to be served by. Parents. Man, if you are a parent in here who has grown children, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31, quoting uh, Genesis 2 and verse 24, had these instructive words. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Look what he says here. He's going to leave his father and his mother. Parents, the greatest thing you can do for your grown children who are married is to be an advocate for their marriage. When my parents got married, they lived across the street from my mom's parents. And my my mom's mom told her early on, uh, I think right before they got married, she said, listen, when Bill does things wrong, don't tell me about it. You're my daughter, I'm going to take your side. I have to find it in me to love the man who's taking my baby girl away. Don't tell me about it. Parents, you have an opportunity to be advocates for your kids' wedding, your kids' marriages. And so when your kids come to you and they're struggling in the midst of marriage, encourage them to stay in, to fight the good fight. When they need help, help find them someone to give them wisdom. I mean, if they seek you out, for sure, give that wisdom to them. But more often than not, you will not be the best source of wisdom for your married children. They need somebody who can love them as a third party, not somebody who wiped their bottoms as a kid. Somebody needs to have hard conversations with them that probably doesn't need to be you. Y'all, marriage is hard. In the economy of God, he gave us an opportunity to display the gospel in this wonderfully frail but incredibly beautiful union called marriage. Let us display the gospel and all the beauties and disasters of marriage as we man, woman, child continually submit ourselves to the Lord and point to him in all things. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and opportunity to respond to you in our marriages. God, I'm thankful that our marriage can, can display redemption. God, I'm thankful that our marriage can show the cross. Help us to embrace the cross in our marriages, to be willing to serve and to suffer for our spouses. Father, we want to pray for the wives in the room who are struggling in the midst of their marriages. God, that they would be encouraged by the power of your spirit in their lives. God, that you would give them encouragement today, that you would surround them with women who have gone before them that are further down the road, that could pray for them, could help them on this journey. Father, I pray for the encouragement of the men in the room that are struggling with knowing how to love their wives well. Feel like everything they do is wrong and they just wonder if it's even worth it anymore. God, would you encourage them by the power of your spirit? 
would you show them and remind them the picture of Christ willingly submitting himself on behalf of the church? And would you give them the strength to display that terrific weakness in the midst of their marriage? And God, I pray for the rest of us, those who, God, have opportunities to be advocates for Christian marriage. that we would pray for one another often, that we would pray for marriages in turmoil. God, that we would call for reconciliation and that we would extend grace constantly. Father, we pray for those who even in this hearing, married or single, that have not yet responded to your gospel. God, that they would see and reflect and recognize in the beauty of marriage a picture of Jesus Christ who took upon himself sin, who took upon himself death and was raised on the third day, Father, that they would submit themselves to you and cry out for salvation. Father, we ask and submit these things to you in your son's name. Amen. Amen.